This is the College of Europe's Connect Society podcast, where ideas meet action and the future of Europe is only a click away. The Connect Society is not just about discussing digital issues. We are amplifying voices of experts in EU digital policy from here in Bruges. Get ready for these in-depth discussions with industry experts, leaders, and of course, our student advocates. This podcast is possible thanks to the unparalleled academic environment at the College of Europe, which positions us to explore the space of digital policy. This platform by the college further allows us to be part of a community that does not just converse about the future, but also gives us the tools to actually shape it. Disinformation, misinformation, and propaganda are one of the numerous threats we encounter online. Although they have been around for as long as human communication, they have been hugely facilitated by the boom in the online domain of the past few years, including in the area of artificial intelligence. They have been gaining such a political momentum that they got high on the agenda of this year's World Economic Forum in Davos. There's a track of work regarding these phenomena, including foreign influence, but also digital policies at large, in the European Parliament, and one of the MEPs who are active in the areas of disinformation and AI is Marketa Gregorova, a Czech MEP from the Czech Pirate Party sitting in the European Parliament in the Greens European Free Alliance Group. We spoke about disinformation online, protection of users online, including privacy, but also resilience, as well as European Parliament's role in these areas. My name is Marketa Shonkova, and my host today is member of the European Parliament, Mr. Marketa Gregorova. Welcome, and thank you very much for finding the time in your busy agenda. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. So, my first question, uh, you've been focusing on disinformation throughout your mandate. In Davos earlier this year, the president of the European Commission mentioned that the biggest concern for the global business community in the next two years is disinformation uh, and misinformation followed by polarization in our societies. She called for a global response. Uh, so I would like to ask, where do you see EU's role in this area and where do you see the role of the European Parliament specifically? Well, uh, first of all, she's absolutely right. <laughs> I do also perceive disinformation, misinformation and propaganda and any foreign interference to be of utmost importance in the upcoming five years. And before I quickly say what the EU does or what's its role, I'll say why I think it's important. Because uh, this information, like true ones, not just random spread lies or fake news, uh, but the true disinformation campaigns do one important thing. They destroy trust of people in their democratic institutions. And uh, we have many upcoming elections Of course, the European ones now will be very vulnerable. But even in national member states, there will be over the course of five years many uh, elections and many disinformation campaigns. And we might actually see a world where foreign actors with their disinformation put into power people and governments uh, that are on their side either or which are extremist or very populistic. And I'm very afraid of that. So I agree, it's uh, one of the biggest threats. The European Parliament and European Union's role in it is to protect our common space of all the national member states, because uh, especially online campaigns uh, are being spread on the biggest oligopolies, uh, the biggest digital platforms. And honestly, 
only the single uh, European market can really talk to these companies and to these oligopolies, such as uh, Google, uh, Facebook, sorry, Meta, uh, and others. And uh, only this uh, economic power of the single European market can persuade them to do something, which, by the way, for instance, Digital Services Act uh, showcases. Uh, if only the Czech Republic, the Czech government, decided to talk to Meta about some I don't know, content moderation. I don't think that's the solution. But let's say simplified content moderation. What do you think Meta would do? <laughs> Probably not really listen uh, to anything that the Czech government has to say. So I think this is the power we have. Otherwise, the problem I think is that a lot of things that need to be done uh, are actually on the national member states level. Uh, and I think that's why nothing much is happening. But yeah, I think we will talk about it more. <laughs> You've been in involved in the work of the Special Committee of Foreign uh, Interference in all democratic processes of the EU, including disinformation, as one of its coordinators. Now that the mandate of the Special Committee has been over for almost two years, I would like to ask how do you assess its work and its impact, specifically in the online domain, but also if you're happy with the way the concerns raised uh, in, the, in the report regarding, for example, disinformation, algorithms, and AI, if you are happy how they have been addressed so far? Well... The Special Committee for Foreign Interference and Disinformation uh, has been set up because of very specific uh, individual uh, case uh, that was going on at that time in Spain, actually. Uh, but since then, we, the members of it, realized that the problem and the issue is much larger and needs our full attention. So we have been actually fighting for the existence of special committee uh, for foreign interference and disinformation because usually special committees are set up for like half a year to solve the specific case and then uh, are disbanded. And we existed for two years, which or two and a half even, which is quite uh, ridiculous. And uh, oh, I, I take some credit for that because we were really heavily lobbying. Uh, the problem is European Parliament does not have a legislative initiative. So um, one third, I would say, of our work was drafting reports and persuading other actors, such as national member states and the Commission especially, to take our reports, to take what we discussed with the utmost exper experts uh, in the whole uh, Union and other countries, and to draft a proper legislation. I will come back to this, but... Uh, I do think that there were some successes and also there uh, was not done enough. But we did this. Other part of our job uh, was to talk to the experts, to people, to gather the know-how. And here I really think we succeeded. We talked to uh, the best of the best and uh, the European Parliament as a body uh, really gained an extensive knowledge. And even though the Special Committee on Disinformation cannot did not produce legislation because we can't. Uh, there has been some legislation, some legislations, and uh, our members, including me, worked on these in other um, permanent committees with the knowledge base that we had. So I think that was a success. Um, last but not least, we, of course, uh, exchanged, uh, let's say, knowledge and also 
just presence and traveled to many various countries. I think one of the most important was most important was Taiwan, uh, where we traveled uh, as a first actually uh, European Parliament delegation there, and uh, we tried to really to understand how they do it. And I think that um, a lot of the lessons learned then was. Uh, seen in our reports. Also, what I need to mention about the special committee is that, uh, unfortunately, the uh, second half of our mandate was stained by the Qatar gate, by the corruption case uh, within the parliament's walls. And so actually, our committee was asked to draft a report on anti-corruption measures because they are closely connected to foreign interference because Qatar and other countries were able to interfere in our democratic processes. Uh, and I think that that was also a success because there has been a huge number of implementations because this was not uh, European legislation, but something to implement onto ourselves, on uh, European institutions. Uh, so I think that was good. Now, Backtracking a little bit to what I said about the um, work of the commission and what we wanted it to do and what was done, we were told by some commission members that there is not a political will for a substantive legislation on disinformation. So that was a disappointment. However, we had the Digital Services Act, yes, so we now will have more open algorithms from the digital oligopolies and we will be able to maybe base our next steps on the data from the algorithms. Then there was this um, legislation on uh, political advertisement and its regulation and ban of certain political advertisement. So that also helps because uh, there is no, there should be no freedom of reach. <laughs> and um, the last but not least was the defense of democracy package, which unfortunately came very, very, very late now. <laughs> and we are nearing the end of our mandate. But uh, there is the legislation on um, funding of organizations in European uh, Union from third countries. So that might be also useful. But of course, I cannot now say whether uh, it will have the impact it should, because it's not yet even negotiated. So that's why I say there was done something, but not enough. So my next question would be really talking about online regulation specifically. Because I feel that self-regulation, voluntary approach, they are very important, just as consistent emphasis on awareness raising, education and information literacy. But I feel that at the moment, they are not really enough. After all, the recent hearing in the US Senate recently has really showed some serious gaps in protection online, especially related to child safety. So I was wondering about the current stance of the European Parliament regarding platform policies and regulation and specifically safeguards and protections on online platforms. Yes, well, that, that's a um, that's topic that's not just related, of course, to disinformation, um, because, uh, for instance, uh, child protection is also related uh, to how apps are abusing uh, them either financially, there is this sort of looting and other forms of, um, let's say, if uh, a parent puts their, their credit card, uh, the child is very... In incentivized to click uh, so that uh, the parent's credit card is then um, uh, kind of vacued. <laughs> um, 
so that there is many, many things that needs to be addressed. And I think that the European Union is looking at many of these angles. Um, I am not an expert on all of these, but I will try to sort of cover it. First, which I need to say is that there has been approved, and I'm not sure whether it's now in trialogues or it's actually approved, approved, um, legislation on so-called safe design, uh, which actually is very much connected uh, to disinformation, but also overall experience of users and overall, um, well, business model of the platforms, which are pretty much trying to make us completely dependent on the social media app and to stay there for as long as possible, which has dire psychological consequences, especially on young people. Uh, so safe design, very simply put, uh, pretty much says that this design should be less addictive, uh, there should be options for the users to, for instance, set it up so that it's not sorted by relevance, which means the intransparent algorithms, or maybe by the um, date or time of uh, when somebody added the content, uh, which is very simple addition, but it both helps uh, the user to get a little bit more emancipated and to actually get the content that they want. But it also helps tackle this information because the disinformators and perpetrators have less options to micro-target you because even the business model of the company uh, is undermined by not being able to micro-target you. So that's very beneficial and that's one of the legislations that's actually already on the table. So I think that's very helpful. Uh, there has been also an esports directive regarding the looting, etc. But I think it went in rather wrong direction. I won't go into much detail um, because I am not an expert on this. I was not negotiating the esports directive. Um, but uh, again, I think that what we uh, sort of do with adults uh, should be also taught uh, with children and with youth to be a little bit more aware user, not to hold their hands and sort of bend them and put them into an online cage uh, to uh, protect them from harm. Uh, it's the internet, it's an online space. Of course, there will be always some harm, uh, but you can mitigate it uh, by, again, making the design maybe safer and, of course, by also, let's say, um, educating more the society, and I don't mean just children, but especially the parents, about what dangers actually lie within online games and letting them their kids to stay uh, online uh, rather terminally uh, for hours and hours. Uh, so that's uh, one way. Uh, actually, it ties to my to my next question, which which goes through to privacy and protection of our privacy online, which would be the topic of end-to-end -end encryption. Because there have been some voices in the EU calling for a ban or discussing a creation of sort of backdoor, which could help, for example, when the fight against serious crime online or protection uh, of children online. At the same time, I feel creating such a backdoor could permanently change our privacy online. Could also, for example, threaten independent journalists in, in areas where they can be under threat. And then if there is a one the backdoor once, it could be used. So I was wondering... What was the Parliament's view of this and how can we address and prevent serious crime online while safeguarding the privacy of users online? Well, I, I will preferably give you my own opinion on the European Parliament's because I very much disagree with what majority of the Parliament, tight majority, but 
<laughs> still a couple of more people prefer. My opinion is that this sort of legislation, which uh, uh, is officially nicknamed chit control, uh, is a horrible breach of privacy, uh, which does not help protect children at all. Uh, what um, well, It's also not very new, because uh, breaching end-to-end -end, uh, encryption has been the dream of many governments for many years. And I am in politics for 13 years now, and I have actually uh, seen plenty of attempts like this. But finally, they found uh, the golden egg, uh, which is when you say it's to protect children, then everybody votes for it. Because you cannot, as a politician, vote against something that fights pedophilia, right? Well, you can. <laughs> but um, the thing is that uh, I think they are just using, uh, in this case, uh, children as the sort of uh, banner However, uh, behind it is really just the wish uh, to see into everyone's conversations. And we might say, you know, especially me living in the Czech Republic, very proper democracy with strong rule of law, uh, that, uh, all right, if I have nothing to hide, then nobody will watch me anyway, right? Uh, however, th this is the horrible principle. Uh, first of all, no, the privacy of uh, everyone is immensely important because, uh, as you mentioned, uh, there then can be any sort of abuse. We don't even uh, need bad government in our country for other, other malign actors to maybe target someone within our country. And also we see it on other countries in the European Union, such as uh, Hungary, or now we saw in Poland that uh, uh, actually the new government uncovered that the infamous spyware Pegasus has been actually used against journalists, against opposition politicians, and they have already been spied on. If we give these governments and everyone, uh, the police, uh, Biankoshek on spying, uh, they will do it. We see, you know, if they were capable of buying Pegasus, they bought it because who wouldn't want to spy on their opponents and to have the upper hand. So <clears throat> I think uh, this is very dangerous precedent. And let me also quickly comment uh, also on the uh, child pornography issue, which is sort of the merit of the legislation or should be, um, because this is not uh, what will help. Because either way, you will have to have uh, some sort of algorithms uh, to check it automatically because technically you can't watch conversations uh, on several devices and applications of millions of people, right? So we, you will have to have some sort of uh, um, robots crawling through these conversations and looking uh, through their conversations whether there is, I don't know, triggering words or whether there are, are triggering pictures. You know, AI will check whether it looks like a naked child. However, currently, many people have children. And for instance, are sending parents are sending their pictures to grandparents, you know, on a beach. It does not even have to be uh, a naked child. It can be like in a bath bathing suit. But this all would be triggered. And these people would then be need to be checked uh, by a human preferably, uh, which means, of course, that uh, there would be maybe 
hundreds and thousands of people looking through your very, very personal conversations and very, very personal pictures, which are not harmful at all. And uh, it's really like using this analogy, uh, uh, spilling out the baby with all the baby water, you know. So uh, I think uh, this is a very dangerous precedent. I, of course, am fighting against shit control and I hope it will not fly through. Um, But I think that, yes, we need to protect our privacy. And if we want to fight uh, child pornography, uh, we need to start with uh, finding out uh, the creators and, of course, putting them behind uh, uh, behind bars because it's like it's the fact that there will be of course some users but I really think that we need to target first those who are actually harming the children not those who might be potentially looking at the pictures or videos so with my next question I would like to return back to the platform policies We've seen quite a few changes to the way hosting service providers operate, as well as the direct impact of several digital regulations. I can, for example, mention the DSA that you mentioned as well, as well as impact of voluntary approaches, for example, the 2022 reinforced code of practice on disinformation. Though disinformation and propaganda, they often fall in this gray area, awful but lawful. So I'm wondering, what is the position of the parliament on this? And uh, how do you personally feel like this could be better or effectively addressed awful but lawful (laughs) i i'm hearing it for the first time that's really nicely put oh yes well that's actually uh, very nicely connected to what i have just said because i think that the basis of fighting uh, disinformation is fighting those who actually produce it and there are two types of producers of disinformation Uh, those who are usually not Uh, all the time, but usually based outside of the country or of European Union. Uh, And they might be ideological or they have some malign interest. You know, those are the troll factories in Russia that might be the 50 cent army in China and uh, various others. And uh, they are producing their standard disinformation campaigns and fake news and trying to let them catch up. They, of course, need to be fought by either sanctions or, um, you know, by uh, negotiating with the country, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, but uh, the majority of them needs a proxy in the country. Russian troll uh, factories uh, will not be able to assess each individual context of uh, European countries, which have like 27 different cultures and 24 different languages, etc. You know, uh, and of course they needed to translate it uh, into into the language. So they have proxies. They have people whom I call uh, businessmen with fear, but uh, they are pretty much people who based their business on spreading disinformation. They are oftentimes not ideological. They just want the money, the money from the advertisement or the money from the foreign actors, uh, from the Russian oligarchs, etc. And uh, I really, really firmly believe that if we were able to tackle them, and there are various means, and I will talk about them, uh, then uh, we would really help ourselves a lot. And we would not even need to go into the discussion about uh, uh, about what to do about 
the already existing disinformation. Because honestly, I think that as long as information exists, there will be disinformation. There will be, be someone putting out there uh, something malign. Uh, and we cannot really uh, block it because otherwise then we would also be blocking and censoring truthful information. And I think that's har harmful for society. I, I prefer free society. Uh, so that's why I want to target these people. And I think we have means to target them to some extent. If they want money, they need to have bank accounts or they need to have um, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, ways to receive uh, those money. Or if they, of course, get the money from advertisement, uh, then they have some contracts or there are companies that are ad advertising there. We can talk to the companies to stop it if we think that that platform, for instance, in Czech Republic, uh, there is very famous, infamous uh, disinformation website, Ironet. Uh, there has been, um, for instance, uh, an investigative uh, journalist who uncovered through some very uh, inside intel from security services, he uncovered who stands behind Ironet and that the person is actually being paid from Russia. What did we do to that person? Nothing. He's still free. You know, he's walking around and Ironet is still functioning. Uh, so I think that if we actually had a proper legislation to sanction or put behind bars these people, uh, then, well, the problem would not be resolved, but a huge portion of our problem uh, would be resolved because then we will actually have the space and time uh, to work with society on its own resilience and on critical thinking and media literacy, etc., etc. Nowadays we are flooded, so of course people are you know, completely overwhelmed. But if we manage to get rid of these people and actually also create sort of a fear that nobody would make their business on this information because they would know that they uh, would be then put behind bars because now it's like a free business, everyone, <laughs> uh, then uh, not many people would go into that business anymore. Uh, so our citizens would have the time uh, and our generations would have the time to get resilient and then we would not need any I don't know, stricter regulation. So, of course, this is my uh, ideal idea. <laughs> we are working on it, uh, but uh, it's always a matter of political will. No, this is really not an easy job to do because like, obviously we have to make sure that the freedoms of those who are not doing anything wrong needs to be protected while really making something future-proof. Uh, and speaking about future, uh, I would like to turn to uh, to AI. It's become a buzzword since the launch of ChatGTP in November 2022, but that's by far not when AI was introduced. Uh, it's been around for many decades. It's already left its mark on the way, for example, disinformation uh, is manufactured and spread. We can mention here, for example, deepfakes in terms of visual content and algorithms in terms of how they spread. But so I would like to ask, how do you think this can be addressed on the policy level and how can the European Parliament contribute to these efforts? Uh, well, everybody probably heard about the AI Act uh, that the European Union is now enrolling. The AI Act uh, also suffers, suffers from some, I would say, misinformation. I don't think that uh, it's malign influence. It's more people uh, not being sure what it is. Uh, what it is is very limited uh, attention uh, just towards um, 
uh, human rights. And by human rights, I mean also workers' rights. Um, and, you know, every right that regards uh, citizens uh, in the context of AI. So, for instance, if somebody uh, within the police will want to use AI to maybe uh, face, recognize uh, potential culprits, or if a potential employee, uh, sorry, employer uh, would want to sort uh, CVs of candidates uh, through some AI program, or if in schools uh, there were AI programs um, I don't know, marking or sorting the students. These are all very sensitive things that could, of course, harm these people, the students, the candidates, uh, and the potential uh, culprits, and um, might affect their human rights greatly if there is no human oversight. So that's what AI Act is for. That means it's not for many, many other things. <laughs> uh, I think that Considering what we have been discussing so far, and also my field of uh, expertise, so to say, uh, is that uh, I'm afraid that we are very heavily underestimating the potential of AI in disinformation uh, and especially deepfakes. And I'm not just talking uh, like I was personally one one of the people who were not that much afraid that deepfakes will really change the disinformation landscape because honestly, a lot of people will believe disinformation even if it's just, you know, a politician's face and the text next to the face. <laughs> and they will think that the politician actually said it. So you don't necessarily need a well-crafted video, deepfake video of politician uh, saying something with modulated voice. You know, but people will still believe it. However... If this spreads out like a wildfire, uh, it just even further undermines uh, the trust of people in anything, in any sort of uh, structure or even democracy. So now I'm starting to be more uh, aware of it. And of course, I am also uh, very nervous about the impact again, unfortunately, on young people and on women especially, because there has been many, many cases now, uh, especially in uh, other countries uh, such as US, but in European Union too, where uh, deep fakes of, uh, I don't know, uh, women and young girls uh, being naked or even videos of them, which completely fabricated, um, are spreading and are used for cyberbullying or you know, just to make fun of her, of them, or of, of course, uh, with politicians uh, and uh, female politicians to uh, undermine their credibility. And uh, of course, you might say, well, it's like a fake. However, even if you say 100 times that it's a fake, uh, for us as politicians, uh, it's still something very degrading, uh, even if we know that's not our body. And for young girls, it doesn't matter at all. It's fake. Uh, all of their uh, all of their colleagues in uh, the school uh, will laugh at them anyway, and will bully them uh, based on it anyway. You know, so the impact is the same if it's their body or if it's not their body. And I think we are absolutely not prepared for that. Uh, the European Union started to discuss this, but we are terminally late. <laughs> um, AI Act is late and it's 
addressing just a very small portion of what I already mentioned. And we have nothing yet on the table uh, to fight these sort of things. So I also don't have a, a clear answer. I think that uh, many people should think about this. And I'm also a little bit mad that this is, again, up on the shoulders of the European Union uh, when the national member states are not giving us any more uh, opportunities to fight it, like any more um, uh, uh, rights, uh, but they are also not doing anything uh, against it. And it's their citizens, it's their uh, like women and girls that uh, and children that they should protect. So, yeah, I uh, know I'm sounding now very pessimistic, but it's, again, a new threat, uh, something that emerged quite recently. So it's understandable. We do not have uh, excellent solutions yet, but I feel like people are sleeping on this problem. And that's what makes me sad and depressed. Thank you. Indeed, the the topic of uh, of deep fake porn or revenge pornography that's that's a serious one. I think last week was a, the latest case when Taylor Swift was actually deep faked into this kind of material, which finally draw big attention to this issue. So hopefully, it's going to lead to some some tangible results. But obviously, it's sad that it happens only after a megastar is is attacked in this way. Uh, but staying on the on the topic of of deep fakes, uh, you participated in an experiment some time ago regarding a deep fake video, which got over one million views in the Czech context, which is a lot. Uh, so I was wondering if you can tell me more about it. Like, what lessons has this experiment highlighted for you, and how has it influenced your work on this topic, be it in the parliament but also outside? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, that was back in the day when uh, not many people cared about the topic of disinformation. It was the beautiful days before the war in Ukraine and before the COVID pandemic. <laughs> Imagine, <laughs> it was before COVID. And uh, honestly, it was very difficult to get people's attention uh, towards these issues, towards uh, disinformation, towards deepfakes. And it might sound ridiculous that it was just uh, four years ago, but it was just four years ago when nobody was speaking about these topics. So I had this sort of campaign. Um, it was called Truth Who Hurts. And uh, uh, one of the features uh, was a video uh, where we actually, at that time, uh, Czech Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Andrei Babish, uh, we hired an actor who like could act uh, in a similar manner. Uh, there was a lot of makeup uh, going on. And uh, then on green screen, uh, he I don't know, said some things. It was re- very harmless. I tried to make it, you know, um, as harmless as possible, but still used him because he was the most visible person. So I hoped it will get attention uh, thanks to that. Um, and uh, then uh, through like very... Uh, I would say extensive technology, um, the features of the prime minister who were put in a program onto the features of the actor and my own personal deepfake, Andrei Babish, was created. Uh, we did not make it still perfect, although it could have been in terms of recognition of the person uh, better, just because we also wanted to be clear of any potential lawsuits. <laughs> you know. However, uh, what this experience taught me that just four years ago, it was work uh, costing uh, thou- dozens of thousands of Czech crowns, so thousands of euro, 
costed it costed me the technology, the crew, the makeup, uh, the actor, um, and also the voice software and everything, you know. And uh, even the final result, although we tried to not make it perfect, even if we try to make it perfect, it would not be like, you know, unrecognizable uh, yet. Just four years after that, um, I here at my home right now can go to certain pages and with enough photos or videos of persons, so definitely with the former prime minister, Mr. Babish, uh, I could create better deep fake now for free and in, I would say like 30 minutes uh, without him, <laughs> without any actor and without any help. Uh, and I could make him say whatever I want. I think this is ridiculously fast uh, and also very, very dangerous. It's just for years. It's for free and anybody can do it. I'm almost surprised it's not happening on greater scale yet. Uh, I have already seen in Czech Republic, uh, in France, uh, in Spain and in other countries, uh, deepfakes being used against politicians. Uh, however, maybe people are still afraid, you know, that, which is good, I guess, uh, to properly use it. But it is possible. That's, that's like my outcome, what I wanted to say. It's possible. Uh, so I think that's why I said we kind of overslept on this issue because the technology progressed at a super pace and we barely woke up. Uh, so that's what this experience taught me. I think because I saw, like, uh, I, I physically saw the comparison of how it was difficult four years ago and how easy it is now. Now going back to AI and also tiny bit to to Davos, uh, <clears throat> the World Economic the Global Risk Report of this year has put artificial intelligence as one of the top risks for the next decade. At the same time, it also brings along unprecedented opportunities. So I'm wondering whether you are more cautious or optimistic when it comes to AI in general and whether your position is shared within the European Parliament walls. Well, I uh, just mentioned a couple of threats <laughs> regarding AI. Uh, so this will sound maybe a little weird. However, I am actually a huge techno optimist. Uh, I am very optimistic about what the AI can uh, bring to us. Uh, of course, the... I have read uh, a couple of a uh, couple of books and studies, and I talked during my other campaign on AI with experts who are in the field for 20 plus years. Uh, so I know that uh, we have sort of uh, the timeline of nothing is really happening, nothing is really happening. Then there is some huge breakthrough. And then again, for a couple of years, sometimes, unfortunately, decades, Nothing much is happening. So now we had a quite a big breakthrough uh, with uh, the generative AI models, uh, but you know they are still generative AI. So uh, let's be honest here; uh, they uh, just repurpose what has been put there. They are not even close to uh, general artificial intelligence. However. I am very optimistic in thinking we will get to AGI at one point. Uh, we will just have to wait for the, the another breakthrough. And during that, of course, we can let AI, the generative one or anything else that comes along the way uh, to help us with uh, uh, with what it can do. Uh, so 
I actually think that as a society, we have enough time to progress with it. I know that nowadays there is a lot of discussion about, oh, AI will take all of our jobs. What will we do then? And I actually talked to students on schools and they are like, I don't know into which field to go because I'm afraid my field will get obsolete. And I'm telling them, well, no education is obsolete, I think, because it still gives you the ability to think for yourself and you can still learn new things. And uh, I'm trying to motivate them uh, that uh, any field actually might be useful because even if the field will be overtook by AI, if you are good enough in the field, you will be the one setting up and checking on the AI who does the job. Uh, you know, so... In this regard, I'm quite optimistic. Um, it's just um, also a matter of talking to people about it. If we just uh, go with the flow as we did <laughs> and not prepare our societies for it at all, yes, then we are going to have a problem. Uh, Kai Fuli in AI Superpowers book, uh, former uh, director of Google, Google China, uh, he, for instance, imagined in his book that especially the caretaking uh, jobs will overtake in the future because although we might have electric, electronic dogs who will talk to elderly people, it does not really uh, replace a human worth, a human touch and a chat. You know? So I think that's a nice vision. Everybody slowing down a little bit you know, being sort of taken care of by the machines and AI uh, and just talking to each other and being a nice society. So uh, thank you, Kaifuli, for this sort of vision. Um, it might be very different. We'll see. But I think it's good to start in thinking about it and being prepared for it. And sorry, you asked whether the EU does that. Yes, these discussions are actually held on the EU level and uh, especially in the committees and in the DGs that are dealing with social affairs and employment. These are big topics because they are trying to prepare Europe and European labor market to what's to come. So I'm, I'm glad that at, at least they are looking at it. Now, my last uh, last but one question, we, we touched upon it in a way already at the beginning, but uh, I think we still have uh, some areas that can be addressed. And that's the fact that 2024 is a multi-election year, including the European election, which are happening in the context of high political tension, multiple crises worldwide, which will undoubtedly also influence the campaigns. Uh, and I'm wondering, what do you think, if we have learned from the 2019 uh, election in terms of fight against disinformation, foreign influence and interference and online threats in general, and whether we have become more resilient or whether there is still, I mean, obviously there is still a lot of work to be done, but if you are learning. It would be very surprising if we did not learn anything since 2019. Uh, but I think that uh, the crises that we had uh, to go through were actually helpful in this regard in the long term. I, as I said, in 2019, nobody cared about disinformation. And then COVID came and many families uh, were crushed by disinformation. In many families, people died because they believed in disinformation regarding what is or is not COVID and how will they be uh, healed. And then, of course, the war in Ukraine, uh, Russia's war of aggression started, and that brought another wave of uh, different type of disinformation. So people um, 
are, I would say, because they are encountering more of it and they see that it actually, what it is, it's not like very hidden. They actually physically can see the impact of the disinformation. Uh, I think that uh, they are naturally becoming more resilient. And I think that's of the utmost importance. Because as I mentioned uh, at one point with the internet and children, we cannot, uh, as politicians or as governments, uh, hold hands of citizens and protect them from any sort of harmful information that might, you know, be in their field of vision. You know, we need resilient society. Otherwise, we might do hundreds of regulations and it will not help. So I'm glad that we could uh, learn this way, although it's the hard way, but it's the fastest also. So we are more resilient towards the future. And I think that it will show in the 2024 elections uh, and other election years. We saw in 2016 how Brexit and uh, how uh, American presidential elections have been harmed uh, by Cambridge Analytica and by uh, election manipulation. And I think that since 2016 and then since 2019, we really, really came a long way. We now know so much more. Also, there has been some, as I mentioned, legislative pieces that tried to help it as I say, I'm a little bit more critical here. I think we could have done more, but uh, still the DSA does an awful lot. The political advertisement, also a good one. And uh, there has been, because the uh, society has been attacked so many times, there has been also a resurgence of people and organizations who are fact-checking and who are uh, talking to people about it, either through some workshops or through books, or through videos. Uh, And uh, I think that the European Union and member states are also supporting a lot of these financially, you know, these NGOs, these uh, watchdog organizations. So uh, slowly like this, we are building our resilience. That does not mean that we are super protected in the upcoming 2024 elections. And I am... Uh, personally, oftentimes uh, critical, uh, but saying uh, that uh, we didn't move from 2019, that would be heresy. We we definitely did move. And uh, I think, you know, it will just get better. <laughs> personally, I believe that because um, if some people were not affected by COVID disinformation or they are not affected by um, the Ukraine uh or and Russia disinformation, then they will get affected personally by something else, and then they will see that we have a problem. You know, as we said, I, of course, I don't want to be uh, drastically specific, but uh, if, for instance, some parents, you know, their their kids in school will be targeted, but by what we discussed or by some other cyberbullying, then they will actually see, oh, this is the thing that everybody talks about. It's also harming me and my family. Uh, So yeah, I I would wish upon no one this that ever happened to them. Um, But this is also how resilience is created, unfortunately. So, um, and disinformators are not going uh, away anytime soon. I checked with them. They don't want to leave. (laughs) So uh, we will need to brace ourselves. I see. Well, thank you for checking with them. That's an important (laughs) job.
and well, to conclude this very nice interview, considering its competencies and international roles, where do you see European Parliament's role in the digital policies, digital diplomacy and fight against online threats, including disinformation in the upcoming term? Well, I definitely think that uh, the European Union should build upon the Digital Services Act, because as I mentioned at the beginning, what it does now, to some extent, is uh, saying to these digital oligopolies, uh, please uh, tell us how you enclose our citizens into your algorithmic bubbles and give us the data. And once they give us the data, we should and could build further legislation on these data. We will learn what it actually um, we will learn what it actually does to our citizens and then we will be able to either create better proposals for the safe design or we will be able to uh, better target uh, what exactly is the problem where exactly there's you know, created the algorithmic bubbles and micro-targeting, etc. So building up on DSA, I think, should be a huge role for European institutions in the upcoming years. And second thing, which I already touched upon, but to summarize, is the AI field, the deepfakes, uh, what it does to uh, youth, what it does to women, and what it does to society overall. AI Act is nice, but it's absolutely covering just a very small portion of uh, what might be wrong. And I don't care about the businesses. I think you know that there should be as free market as possible so that we are competitive. But when it comes to human rights, I think uh, there should be no compromises. We need to protect them. And so this, I think, should be also a big, big uh, portion of what the European uh, digital agenda will be. Thank you very much. So this was Marketa Shonkova speaking with an MEP, Marketa Gregorova. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me and listening to me. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening. And don't forget to follow Connect Digital Society on LinkedIn and Twitter 